If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Buffy, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 162 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Jawaskin. Great to have you back for another classic conversation with Bruce Ferber. Oh, yes, Bruce Ferber is here. Emmy-nominated television writer and producer, showrunner for Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and Home Improvement. We're going to talk about a bunch of his writing jobs, one in particular on Booze and Buddies. Bruce also shares an incredible story that he shared with former guest Billy Van Sant while they both worked on the TV show Nurses. And of course, we're talking Beatles, lots of Beatles, as we dive into Bruce's brand new novel, I Buried Paul. I Buried Paul is the name of the novel, but don't worry, Paul is not actually dead. This is a story. It's a love letter to the power of music. It's humorous. It's got all the feels. You're going to love it. Follows the story of a Beatles tribute band, so we're talking, we're talking all things Beatles. You're going to love it, and that's coming up in just a few seconds. In these few seconds, if you're new to the show, I hope you caught last week's episode with Tamara Catan. I hope you dive into all the many, many episodes we have. So many great episodes. Tamara is a comedian, international comedian. So many great stories. Comics are so fun to talk to. And there's tons of great guests. So dive in, follow the show, do all those things. In the meantime... Let's get to my conversation with Bruce Ferber. He shares a lot of great stories about Tim Allen. There's some Jason Alexander in there. And there's a pop quiz at the end where you have to answer, did Bruce Ferber like Webster or not? The TV show, that is. So much to take in. And of course, his book, I Buried Paul. We're talking Beatles. I Buried Paul, the book, a thoroughly enjoyable read. Beatle fans will love it, says Stevie Van Zant. I just wanted to read that quote on the book so I can brag to have mentioned two Van Zants in the first three minutes of the podcast. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with Bruce Ferber. Enjoy. All right, everyone, I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, novelist, Emmy-nominated television writer, producer. Credits include Bosom Buddies, Growing Pain, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Coach, Home Improvement, author of many novels, including the one we're going to focus on today, his brand new novel, I Buried Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Bruce Ferber. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please, a little lower. I can't hear myself think, but I will try. <laughs> well, all right. We'll try and keep it. Uh, keep it down, everyone. Bruce can't think. <laughs> Bruce, I want. Let's start with a highlight of your one of your highlights of your career. Uh, you have worked with both Woody and Buzz Lightyear. That's I so have. impressive. That is so. On <laughs> <laughs> two of great, great shows booze and buddies which i know is like where you kind of got your start writing and then right. a showrunner of home improvement i'd love to kind of dive into what was the path to 
booze and buddies because I assume you had uh, there was something that sparked you as a writer that led you to working with that great team. Yeah, let me just say that that was my first writing job in Hollywood, and I was not a staff writer on the show. Uh, my then writing partner and I got hired to do two episodes. We knew one of the producers on the show, and he showed the executive producer our spec scripts, and he said, okay, let's bring them on to do an episode, and uh, they liked it enough that they hired us to do another one. I only met Tom Hanks once at a party when he was doing the show. He's a great guy. Tim, I know a whole lot better <laughs> from Home Improvement because I worked on the show for six seasons. I was the showrunner for the last three. We had many, many uh, encounters. That's awesome. I need to focus on Tom Hanks for a second. So <laughs> uh, Booze and Buddies is one of those shows that it wasn't even on that long, but as you've contributed to something that for some reason, that's one of those shows that is still in the zeitgeist. Like people know, but I know probably because it was one of those old Tom Hanks shows, but you know, there's a lot of things that stars do that people don't remember. There was just something about that show that was just so. Well, it, you know, it was it was the thing that got him started and made making made people realize how funny he was. The show had some really great stuff. It had some not so great stuff to it, where they had to dress and drag and and all this stuff. It was a very you know very high concept thing that they had to do that to sell the series. And then they realized that Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari were so brilliant together and so funny that they didn't need even need to do that as much so the people remember it because it, it was it was well written it was kind of a subversive show in its own way and it was a good a good starting point for tom hanks i thought has one of the best openings of any show and just the whole mind i rewatched it today just what and uh and i had a billy joel song so you can't my life so you can't so it's a very memorable thing so when i when i saw that you had contributed to that that was exciting oh, for me Thank you. So the path to being a writer, when did you realize this was your destiny? You know, I fooled around with writing, you know, in high school. I, I didn't really take it that seriously. I just, I liked doing it. But then I went to NYU film school and we had to write scripts for our short films and stuff. And when I was at NYU film school, I think it was a lot different than it is today. There weren't very many writing classes. There were a couple, uh, nowhere near enough to teach us that if you don't have a good script, you don't have anything. I mean, basically, when we were young kids uh, in film school, it was so exciting to get our hands on the equipment. Because remember, in those days, you couldn't shoot a movie with a with an iPhone. You needed a separate recorder. They called it a Nagra, which was a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder for optimum sound. And you had an Araflex or a Bolex or whatever camera you were using, and you had a whole crew. And then you went into the editing room where you actually cut the film and all this kind of stuff. And for somebody like me, and most of the people, I would say, in film school at that time, it was just like so exciting to be around the tools of making movies that we tended to, I think the scripts all got short shrift, you know, and, and how important the writing was in, in those days. So we made our little films and then we graduated and we had to get jobs. And, and the one thing that I knew that I could get a job at was being an assistant editor. And that's how I made my money. When I came from NYU and came out to California, what I would do is I would work for six months. Usually if you worked on a show or a movie, you were in the editing room for about six months. Then it would end. 
I'd go on unemployment insurance, and I would consider that my national endowment grant to write. And so I took six months to write until the the, the money ran out, and uh, I had to get another job. So this kind of went back and forth and back and forth until finally I got the opportunity on Booze and Buddies. Kind of took off from there. You, you mentioned you weren't on staff on Booze and Buddies. So when you yeah. write a script and you're not like, how much? control as the writer do you have? None. I mean, basically, you go in for the meeting and the executive producer is there and you you break the story with him and the other writers on the show. And then you turn in your outline and then you turn in your first draft and maybe they have you do a second draft. And then it's out of your hands. It's all in the hands of pretty much the executive producer is the one who calls the shots as to what the final script is going to look like. And that's just the way it was, you know. And when I was the executive producer on Home Improvement, I was the final say. So you kind of learn the ropes when you're working in TV as as part of a team. Oh, very cool. And then Laverne and Shirley, you got to, you wrote a script for Laverne and Shirley? That was another, you know, freelance script. I barely remember writing it. I barely remember pitching it, but all fun to do, all fun stuff. Did you get to work with Gary Marshall? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> My partner and I were pitching to the guys that he had hired to run the show. And, you know, we wrote our freelance script and, and that was it. I don't know if Booze and Buddies is in rotation now. I'm sure Laverne and Shirley is. Do you ever like, you ever like watching TV in one of your episodes comes on of any one of these kind of shows yeah. you've done not home improvement because you did you were part of most of that but like exactly. you know, random facts of life or a webster or something oh i, I avoid those i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> well somebody but, uh, but does but is, no, does your family know which ones uh you know uncle bruce grandpa you know do they know like, oh that was, uh, <laughs> i don't know but those those were the pay the rent jobs okay all right. Well, I mean, it's a good list. It's a good list. Which I was gung ho pay to rent too. All these gung ho was actually super fun to do. I don't know if you ever saw the movie gung ho. Did you, did you like a long it? time ago. Yeah, the movie was pretty good, and it had Michael Keaton, and it had these fabulous Japanese actors playing, you know, the people in the car company that took over the American car company. It was a very controversial subject at the time because nobody wanted to see this show or, you know, they saw the movie, which they saw it once, but the show was like an ongoing show about the Japanese, about Americans working for Japanese people. Not exactly what Detroit or anybody wanted to see in America. But these Japanese actors, we had Getty Watanabe, 16 Candles. I mean, he, sure. he was fantastic. And then all the other Japanese actors on the show were great. And we had Scott Bakula in the Michael Keaton role. So it, that, that was a really fun show to do, actually. What were the other uh, kind of pay the rent ones? Because you have Simon and Simon, House Calls. When you were on House Calls, was that the Sharon Glass years or prior? Yes, it was the Sharon Glass years. And I had a blast working on that show because it was my first time working at Universal. I had only worked at Paramount and there were there wasn't a big writing staff or anything like that. And it was the first single camera show that I ever worked on where it wasn't shot in front of an audience. And it was just different for me. It was fun and wrote a lot of episodes and worked with some fun people. Uh, Ray Buck Tanika, who had been on Rhoda as I think it was Brenda's boyfriend or something like that. But he was big on house calls and he was fun to write for. And so I, I actually really enjoyed that one too. Oh, cool. Yeah. I talked to Sharon Glass. That was one of her kind of early shows. And then for the big Cagney and Lacey. Yeah. Fun just to kind of go through the Rolodex growing up and watching all these shows. <laughs> as give you questions on. So at what point were you not just paying the rent and like it became like, all right, I don't have to worry anymore. Now this is my full time 
You know, like what point did that, you mentioned some of these were kind of pay the rent jobs. And so some of them were paid. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like, it's a very fickle business as you probably know. At one point I was at Paramount for like six years, everything was cool. And then I had a development deal and I didn't sell a show that year. And lo and behold, my deal was not picked up. So I had to go back out into the world and take another pay the rent show. (laughs) So I did that. And I did that for two years. Then home improvement came along. All right. So it's just, it's just like anything, just up and down. Hey, everyone. Just want to take a quick break. Thank everyone for the support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. Now back to my amazing conversation with Bruce Ferber. We're about to dive into home improvement. And we're back. With home improvement, you said you were there for... Six years. Yeah. You came in, the characters are established. What's it like kind of coming in into a show that's somewhat has has some roots and then kind of taking it from there and making it your own? Well, it was an interesting situation because the three guys who created the show, they left after two years. They were still kind of around, but they weren't actively involved in the show. So somebody new came over and he hired me. His mandate, he felt his mandate, he wanted it to be his mandate, which was to open up the show, give Patricia Richardson some of her own stories. And Tim, to his credit, was open to that. And we just kind of broadened the show a little more. We found new ways of telling stories that service the other characters and let them show off what they could do. So that's what we started doing in season three when I wasn't the showrunner. And then when I took over in season, I guess, six, I mean, I was there the whole time. I just kind of continued to try and find new avenues for stories and you know, new ways of doing things. Like, was there any kind of change or anything like that? Because Toy Story hit like in the middle, right? So Tim Allen's star like blue, blue. Well, you're forgetting the Santa Claus. Oh, the Santa Claus, right? Because I don't remember exactly the year of the first to- Toy Story. Do you know the, the year? I, I think they were almost back to back, 94, 95. 94, 95. And the Santa Claus, the Santa Claus was right around then too. It was 94 and then, Tim, and then uh, the next year was Toy Story, at least in terms of release date. Yeah. Yeah. So for us, the big thing was the Santa Claus because he was doing live action when he was doing Toy Story. You know, he was a voice actor, but when he was doing Santa Claus, he was actually filming movies in between seasons of the show. So we used to go one one year we went to Toronto to pitch him the stories for the next season. That's where they were shooting the Santa Claus. So that was more that affected us more than actually the whole Toy Story thing which was great for him and uh, incredible movies. I just, I was curious, you know, I was like, oh, we got to focus more on Tim now, <laughs> get it back. And then the son went on to be uh, Lion King. A lot came out of that show. A lot came out yeah. of that show. Mm-hmm. And then I don't want to talk about home improvement without mentioning your acting debut as man and long and winding road part three. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. I, I, man was a great part. <laughs> yes, I played man. <laughs> and the thing is, that there, there doesn't seem to be any record, any surviving record of my performance as man, because as, as you may or may not know, when you do a show for network and then have to re-edit it for syndication, um, you have to make it shorter because there are more commercials in syndication. So we got to syndication and my performance as man was the most cuttable thing of that 
final episode. So, you know, I'm in the final episode of one of the most popular sitcoms of all time, and I cut myself out in the syndicated version. I aired live, you know, for America to see, and I, you know, that that was great. But the bummer is I have no, there's nothing, there's nothing surviving. When they did the DVDs, they did it from the syndicated cut, <laughs> and they didn't do the, the original. I, I wish, you know, I, I wish I could see myself as man- one more time, but I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> well, perhaps one day they'll find the lost footage and we can, they can do a whole special around it because it's, uh, it's a shame to have something like that lost, lost forever. Uh, I agree. And, and especially since the, the role that I played, I was a chair rental delivery man. So, and, and I, I have at one point, you know, I may actually have this right here in this room, in my closet, the, the wardrobe that I wore. Um, and I, I worked for a chair rental company called Sit On This, and I and it had my the logo of the company and all that stuff. So, right. Anyway, far, far too much talk about man. Nah, you know it's it's the last role because you know people watch <laughs> the episode and they're like, wait, the sh- the chairs just showed up. Somebody had yeah. to have delivered these chairs. Where's and, man? They're all asking for man. What, how did these <laughs> chairs just get here? It's like it's taking me right out of it. <laughs> All right, so you were showrunner for Sabrina the Teenage Witch and Home Improvement. So, right. what is that job actually like? I I, get, I know you're the big cheese and you're in charge of everything, but does that mean you get to decide the plot lines or you know like the whole story arcs? Like, what what is that job? Okay, imagine what you just said that you get to decide everything, but you just have to run it by some people first. That's what it is. So you get to decide everything, but. The network wants to hear what your stories are. Usually the studio may want to hear it. Other executive producers who may not be writing producers need to hear it. In the case of Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, that was Paula Hart, who was uh, who is Melissa's mother, who was an executive producer on the show. She started it up. So whenever I had stories, I would run them by her. And she usually, you know, we got along really well. And uh, then we pitched them to the network. And, you know, on that show, everything went super smoothly. I mean, people seemed to like what we wanted to do. And it was just, it ran like clockwork. It was, it was really fun, but yeah. So the big cheese makes all the decisions in the end with casting this and that the network can nix your casting if they want, but usually they don't do that. If you're just talking about episode to episode, they'll let you hire your guest stars. A lot of times though, they say, we want you to hire promotable names. So they'll give you names. If you're doing a show like Sabrina the Teenage Witch and you have a part for a guest star, they'll be shoving you people in that 18 to 34 range or 12 to 18 year old range that they think will appeal to their to their audience. Got it. So on both of those shows, Sabrina the Teenage Witch and Home Improvement, on Sabrina, Carolyn Ray, and then on Home Improvement, of course, Tim Allen, so was having like these top line comedians on the show, would they be a little more picky with the scripts or like, hey, this joke isn't working or were they were they lending their insight into that type of stuff? Is that the type of environment it might have been? I think both. I mean, Tim was used to doing stand up. He liked to improv. And he had very specific things that he didn't like. And it wasn't always easy to know whether he would like a joke or not like a joke. But if he didn't like the joke, he would let you know at the table reading because he wouldn't even read it in a way that might get a laugh. <laughs> you know, He would let you know that you know, this is not something I want to do. I have a, a funny Tim Allen story about something like this because he loved to improv. So if you remember, 
Most people who watch the show remember that we did a segment called Tool Time. Mm-hmm. We were doing a, a Tool Time segment about door locks, locks for your house, right? And we had some silly joke about, he said, you know, you can have all different kinds of locks. You know, you can have your police locks, your deadbolt locks, your bagels and locks. And, you know, and that was the silly mm-hmm. joke. And then he started going on and on and on about bagels and locks as we were shooting the show. He was improv right? So we were in the producer's booth and we had the director give Tim a note, you know, that he was like going off a little too much. And the note was a little locks goes a long way. So we basically that was our way of telling him to do the joke as written. We do the next take and he says, you know, you have your, your police locks, your deadbolt locks, your bagels and locks. And remember, a little locks goes a long way. He thought we were giving him a line of dialogue and it got a huge laugh. So we just threw our hands up and said, whatever this guy says, you know, as long as he says it, you know, with conviction and doesn't go on too long, it's going to get an enormous laugh from the, from the audience. <laughs> That's impressive because Tim Allen's not Jewish and to make a solid locks joke like that is dead on. That was dead on. Dead, dead on, dead on. And the way, well, the bagels and locks joke was, was written for him. And then a little locks goes a long way was not a joke. He was just saying he was he was saying a direction as a line of dialogue. And because he said it, the audience went crazy. Well, I'm just saying as a as a Jewish person, when I first when I hear that, I can pick you can picture my parents or my grandparents, you know, because locks is like five hundred dollars a pound. Right. So it was like a little locks. This is fine. There's other people. (laughs) He was just reading the line that he thought was a line that wasn't a line. Right. It's good. It's good. You must have had Jewish people on on staff because lox is a very Jewish word and smoked salmon is the non-Jewish version of it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's a great story. Let's talk about your books. Let's do it. Let's do it. So you have four books. When you transition to novelist, I imagine, like you said, as as executive showrunner, you get to be the boss, but you get to, you just have to run it by a few people. I would imagine as a novelist, you get to be the boss and you're the boss. Yeah. And, you, and you're and you just begging for people to run, run it by because you're so sick of being with yourself all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, what I always tell people is that I, you know, I like the job. I just don't always like the company. <laughs> it's always an office party, a one person office party. Right? An office party with that guy you don't want to run into, me. <laughs> what made you kind of walk away from the grind of, you know, just producing shows and kind of just focus on novels? couple of factors, um, one of which when I finished doing home improvement, the kind of pilots, the kind of shows the networks were buying, they all wanted the next clone of Friends because Friends was a big hit show. And in those days, I mean, there was not one person well, one show, not one example of somebody who tried to replicate Friends, not one show that worked in my knowledge. They figured, oh, a bunch of young people, they're funny, they you know, they live together or they do this, they do that. Yeah, we can come up with a funny show, get the right writer and all this stuff. So, I found myself going in and trying to pitch versions of that. And I didn't, didn't even want to write that. It was not where my head was at at all. And finally, I just said, you know, I don't really need to do this anymore and I'm going to take a break. And one day, my therapist said to me, "Have you ever thought of writing a novel?" And I said, I couldn't do that. And then one day I started writing this character that was the character from my first book, Elevating Overman. And this is about a guy who was about my age at the time and looking to change his life as I was looking to change my life. And so I wrote three pages of this about a guy looking to change his life. 
And I really liked writing this character. It was really, really fun. But, you know, I didn't really know what the story would be. All I knew was that there was this guy and he was kind of failed. He had a failed marriage. He, he wasn't, his kids weren't talking to him anymore. He wanted to change his life. And one day I went to my mailbox and there was a copy of the penny saver, you know, those mm -hmm. throwaways with all the ads in it. And there was a big ad for life-changing LASIK surgery, $250 an eye. And I said, okay, I'm, I am running with this. So in that story, in that probably the first chapter, the guy, you know, wants to change his life. He picks up the penny saver and he says, you know what? I, I got a lot of bigger things I want to change, but why not start small? I've been wearing glasses my whole life. Let's see what happens. And so he has the LASIK surgery and sure enough, his, his life starts to change and he sees the world differently. He sees it not only with better vision, but he sees it in a deeper way. So that was the beginning. That's very cool. And then when I was reading about that, Jason Alexander did the audio book and yes. there was going to be a TV series. It's still in. He and I were, you know, we were developing this first as a movie and then you know, then as a TV series. And he was locked in for it uh, whenever, if we, if we made the sale. So we, we had a couple of, a couple of bites, one in, in movie form and one in TV form that never really panned out. And then we never really went out and, and pitched it in a, in a big way. I mean, Jason is the busiest man in America. He's, if he's not doing a Broadway show, you know, he's directing Broadway shows. He's, he's just always, always active. And unless I was, the one setting up all these meetings at a certain point, they weren't going to happen because he had other opportunities he had to go after. And at that point, when I started writing novels, I wasn't with my big CAA agent anymore. I, I couldn't, I, I didn't have those connections to set up the meetings we needed to have. So I just went back to my computer and just kept writing my books and people would call me occasionally saying, Hey, what about this? What about that? And I said, sure, you want, you want to get it together? I'm there. So that's where we're at. Very cool. Well, I hope it happens one day. I, so I, a little trivia I found is he did the audio and did all the voices and yes. that he was inspired by listening to Jim Dale, who did all the Harry Potter books and did all the voices for Harry Potter. Sure. And so that inspired him to want to do that for your book. Anyway. Right. Which is kind of the way a lot of people do audiobooks anyway. This new book that I have, the guy who did it, he did great voices. And because it's about the Beatles, we wanted somebody who could do a Liverpool accent. And he got that right. And then he did something that I've never had done in an audiobook before, for me anyway. And I told somebody about this and they said, wow, that's really cool. And what happened was, so I have this one character and in the book, I describe his voice. This is the guy who speaks as John Lennon. He speaks in a Liverpool accent, but I describe his real voice as a cross between Judge Judy and a Queens taxicab driver who bought his medallion in 1965. So heavy New York accent, basically, right? Sure. So somewhere in the book, there's a conversation between the main character, Jimmy, on the phone between Jimmy and Gene, the guy who has the New York accent. And so he put, not only did he do the accent really well, but he put it through a phone sound effect, like a futz. He did not only the voice, but the phone call sound effect. And it was fantastic. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. That is so Yeah, it was great. I Buried Paul is, is your new book. Sorry to interrupt this amazing conversation with Bruce Ferber, but we have to take a quick break. 
And we're back with Bruce Ferber, about to dive even deeper into I Buried Paul and to all his amazing novels. And we're back. I Buried Paul is a love letter to the power of music, a humorous yet moving exploration of the sacrifices its disciples are willing to make in service to its magic. I love the book. I thought it was great. But let's uh, let's just tell everyone about your other books, at least really quick, if you want to just... You had Cascade Falls was your second book. Right. And then you had The Way We Work, On the Job in Hollywood. That's a nonfiction book. That's a, non- yeah. that's a series of essays. You got a bunch of people, including right. Billy Van Zant, friend of this podcast. I love Billy oh, Van cool. Zant. Kind of just talking about Hollywood, sort of an insider's look into... I was the one who got Billy Van Zandt to write his book, to make sure his book got done. Uh, Many moons ago, Billy gave me a draft of that book. I mean, many, many years ago. And he had mentioned too many people in the business by name. And he thought that the book wouldn't work if he had to cut out the names. And I said, you're crazy. It'll work, you know, if you cut out the name. And then I put together this book of essays and I remembered Billy's book that hadn't yet been published. And I asked him if I could put the Lucille Ball essay in my book. And he said, sure. And then from there, that inspired him to do his book, which is great. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Get in the car, Jane is, uh, it's great. It's a great book. It's so good. Do you guys ever compare notes, show runner notes and all that kind of stuff? Cause he's got a oh, cool yeah. list of shows. You got a cool list of shows. The two of you together would be a hell of a panel. Oh, we were, you know, we were on a show together. That's, that's how we met. This was one of the pay the rent jobs, right? And Billy and I would be on this show till three o'clock in the morning every night. And it was just hell. And at one point, I think Billy put this in the book. At one point, Billy looked across the table in the writer's room. He looked across the table at me and said, Bruce, I want you to go out to the parking lot, get in your car, drive it through this building and run me over. And I said to him, only if you guarantee that I die in the accident. <laughs> That's how bad it was. Was that Martin? By no, it wasn't. It was oh, was not Martin. Martin. Okay. Martin. I'm just that, saying, that's, that's the only one I recognize that, uh, that I knew from crossover, but okay. That's how we met. And we've been really good friends ever since. Great guy. <laughs> awesome. That's a funny, do you, do you not want to tell me what show it was? It was nurses. Oh, nurses. Okay. NBC. Nice. Why do I care now? What are they going to do? Nurses was before Martin. Okay. NBC doesn't even remember that it did that show. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. I don't think anyone, but then you guys worked on Martin together and that was a better He worked on Martin. He worked on Martin and he hired me to do a script. Right. You worked on, you did a script. So you guys got to work together there. Okay. So nurses supervising producer for 20 episodes. So it's like you were there a while. I lasted maybe seven more episodes than Billy, something like that on nurses. All right. Did a lot of house cleaning. With me, they traded me to a different show that year. So Got it. When this releases, the show notes are going to pick up in SEO and nurses are going to start trending and everyone's going to be like, what? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big. (laughs) Everybody. All right. So let's talk about I Buried Paul. So are you obsessed with the Beatles? Is that what kind of drove you to the... Um, What drove me to this is I'm sort of obsessed with music and I love the Beatles. I grew up with the Beatles and, you know, they're, they're appearing on Ed Sullivan and all this stuff. But I'm obsessed with music and... One of the things that made me write about, that made me use the Beatles as part of this book, is that I went back to Long Island for a wedding where I'm from, and one of the guys I went to high school with was playing in a Beatles tribute band, and they were pretty damn good. You know, I had known about Beatles tribute bands and the Fab Four and all this kind of stuff, but I didn't realize that there were so many of these, and there weren't that many back then, but that there were these people doing this on a local level in like a county park. 
and they were good. And then somewhere in watching them, I saw the van with all the wigs and stuff. And I said, wow, this is crazy that, you know, these guys who were like, at that point, I guess they were in their late fifties dressing up like the Beatles and wearing wigs. And this is just weird. And that that just kind of stuck in my memory. So when I decided that I wanted to do a story about a musician trying to make a living in today's world, I thought, have him be Paul McCartney in a Beatles tribute band, because this is actually a job that people, that musicians can get. If you're good enough, I've said, I'm on these Beatles tribute band sites. You know, I see these ads, you know, in Barcelona, looking for a Paul from August to, uh, you know, October guaranteed gigs. They're looking for a John in Australia. And, you know, I mean, this is whoever imagined that this world would ever exist. And it's fascinating. That is one of the takeaways I took from the book. I was like, oh my goodness. And I'm sure that we don't want to give too much away because the book's brand new. But like one of the things is a Beatles battle of the bands plays into it, right? When I read that, I was like, oh my God, that would be amazing. I've always wanted to see Rain. They always come to Detroit. They play the Fox Theater. I'm always like, that would be really cool. Especially like, oh, we're doing Abbey Road or, you know, like a particular. And I was like, that would be fun to go to. But I've never, never actually done it. But like the idea of going to a Beatles battle of the band would be incredible. I was like, that's what kind of... You can do that. You know, they have a big Beatle Fest every year. There's one in Chicago. I think that's this year, like somewhere around now. And then there's one in New Jersey next year. And I think they they may have these things, you know, and if they do, it's probably on a slightly bigger level than mine. Although mine, I took to the most absurd places because as I told, you know, I've been kind of now involved with some of these Beatle diehards from the podcast and the, and the, and the websites and stuff. And one guy said, well, you know, in your book, you know, you went a little uh, crazy with the tribute bands. I said, dude, for me, it's all about the music. I have total respect for the music, but the minute the wigs come out, it's fair game for comedy. So I ran with that and had a lot of fun with it. And you're hundred percent right. Thefest.com. That's the, uh, the website that I found uh, battle of the band Chicago this year. And then there's something coming up in New York as well. Yep. And it's been going on since 1974. It's the longest running Beatles thing. Yeah, I, I don't know how long the Battle of the Bands has been going on. But the Fest has been going on since 1974. Yeah, the Fest yeah. But the whole Beatle thing has gotten you know so out of control. The tribute thing is so out of control. If you look at all these bands, I mean, they just, some of them look so creepy and so weird with the wigs and stuff. But Again, you know, and I say this in the acknowledgments of the book, that the musicianship in a lot of these tribute bands is just great. So more power to them, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, when you think about like a body of music that it even just evolved, right? As much as the Beatles evolved their music. Uh, that's one of the things that was interesting in the book when they were kind of determining, you know, strategizing, you know, going right. in early Beatles, mid Beatles, late Beatles. <laughs> it's like. Because it's like almost stuff. different bands. I mean, it's like, you know, it's so... It's all my stuff, you know, and, you know, somebody asked me, well, are these all real Beatles tribute bands? I said, no, I made, them, I made them up, you know, because if you can't be free writing fiction to make up tribute bands, <laughs> there's something wrong. <laughs> so how much of this did you pull from yourself? I mean, did you, are you a musician yourself or... I'm a very amateur musician. I love to play and, and I know a lot of musicians. I, I see a, a lot of music. I just have, I'm really taken, it, it really made an impact on me how many fantastic musicians there are in Los Angeles, studio musician quality that really struggle to 
to make a living at what they do. And they're good enough 20 times over to be doing this professionally. It's a good time to be uh, talking Beatles too. I mean, I mean, I don't think it's ever gone away, but with Get Back and just before that, McCartney 321, there's been a lot of focus on the early Beatles, creation of the Beatles, all that kind of stuff. I, I saw in the book, I read in the book, you referenced Get Back as well. So it was obviously going on as you were writing it. Well, I, w- I lucked out that my last edit where I was allowed to make one last bit of changes came right after Get Back came out. So I was able to just sort of sneak that in. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote the book way before Get Back came out, but I, but it made sense to make a Get Back reference in the book because even story-wise. I take it you watched it. It was fascinating. It's- it was fascinating. It was long. To me, it was kind of depressing because I'm of the opinion that no one should have to do creative work with one of the partners, significant others sitting in the room next to them. It looked like really inhibiting for the other guys, you know, that they had to sit there. You know, she's sitting there next to John and not contributing anything. And it's like you can just sense how hard that must have been in addition to all the other stuff they were going that was going on with George uh, not being happy that his contributions weren't being valued and stuff. I'm of the mindset that I wish there was more George. I, I think with Beatles songs, tell me if you if you agree with this or not, at different points in your lives, you have different favorite Beatles songs, right? That's one of the kind of cool things about the band. You can love a certain collection of songs and then a different set become really the ones that you want to hear and kind of resonate. And like, I'm at the point, I love all the, like, I love all the George Harrison songs. Those to me are some of the best Beatles songs. And it was, maybe it's good that there was just a few, you know, just so, but I love it. It's a good point with Get Back. It's, it is annoying when people are in the room. Paul seemed to be able to rise above it a little bit. I found it fascinating, the restoration. That looked like they filmed that. Sure. It looked like they filmed it yesterday. No, it was great. Now, you know, speaking to your point, you made a great point about, you know, changing which songs you like. There's a great book by a writer named Rob Sheffield called Dreaming the Beatles. And one of the lines in one of the first chapters is, for those of us who love the Beatles, he writes that your Beatles change as you change. So as you get older, as you go through different things in your life, you know, you might have been like a big Paul fan early on. And then as you get older, you appreciate George's stuff more. And it was, I I thought, a really good point. Right. I think the only constant is Ringo's always great if you're drunk. (laughs) We all live in... (laughs) He's fun. It's his birthday today. You didn't wish him a happy birthday. Happy birthday to Ringo. But now we just dated the podcast. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Well, luckily you can, you have a little edit. Right. I'm kidding. Okay. So how would you describe the book, I Buried Paul, to the audience? Like, what's your summary of the book? We don't want to give too much away. If if you had written it like a while ago, we could dive into certain areas of it, but we want people to read it and we, we don't want to give away any of the plot points or the fun. To me, it's all about the creative process, this book. It's all about, it's like being, it's about being a writer, being a musician, being an artist. It's like, what does it take? What does it take to be an artist? What does it take to satisfy you as an artist and make you feel good that you're doing the best work you possibly can. And in this case, the lead character of the book is 
trying to be the best musician and the most creative musician he can be. One of the things he must do to pay the rent, just as I worked on Webster, he works uh, in a Beatles tribute band, except he's playing the best rock and roll music ever. I don't think many people would say that Webster was the best sitcom ever made. Maybe you, but <laughs> not it, nobody it has a place. It has a place in my heart. <laughs> okay, there you go. So that's that's what it's about for me. It's about finding your way musically. And it's really about people. And I don't know if you feel this doing what you do. There are people who feel like they can't really be comfortable unless they're creating or creating something. And even, you know, for those of us with day jobs or whatever, just to be able to create something of our own, we feel better for doing it. And there's some people who don't create at all. But for those of us who do, that's what really what this book is about. This book is about the creative process and realizing your dream. I agree with you 100%. I'm, I'm of the, the ilk too. Just you have to always be doing something. Have to be doing something. The book is a great read. It's humorous. It's got heart. It's a great story. It reads quick, which to me is is good because it means, I, I mean, I don't want to, I wanted to keep getting back to it. So I enjoyed it a lot. And I, of course, love the whole Beatles, all the Beatles parts of it. You weave all that in. So it was a real fun just story in general. Thank you. And it tugged at the heart. It, there was a couple of tugs of the heart there along the way as well. So it's got everything. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. You're welcome. I love it. What is next for you, Bruce? Whew. Okay, so um, we talked about TV. I have this animated show I'm trying to sell that is, I think it's great. And I can say that because it's based on a book written by somebody who's not me. <laughs> I found this book and I said, this is this is a fantastic idea for a series. And I'm trying to sell this thing. And it's just, it's very difficult out there trying to sell television shows. It's a different, different landscape from what I remember. For one thing, all the pitches are like this. They're on Zoom, you know, and now you send them the script or the written stuff afterward, but there's something different when you're not in the room with the people you're trying to sell. So there's that. And then I also have a new novel that I've been working on. You're like the busiest guy ever. Novel after novel, you got so many, but you're a writer, so you got to get the words out. But you know what? The only reason that it looks like I'm so productive, and I, I am somewhat productive, it took me a year to sell I Buried Paul after I'd written it. And then I had two years of COVID where I had nothing else to do. So I had this idea for a novel, and that's how I spent my time. You know, I, I needed something to do. So there I was. I feel like I Buried Paul, the whole idea of a Beatles, not cover band. Is that a Beatles cover band? Is that what they're called? Well, this is a tribute band. Tribute, tribute thank, band. thank you. That's I just lost. They, they wear the outfits. Yeah, I just, I lost the word for a second. I knew there was a better word. The whole idea of a, a Beatles tribute band, I think would make a great series. I think that would be hilarious, you know, because like, that would be fun. And there'd be all the different acts and the music. It would be, I think it would be cool. So we can get Jason Alexander to be John. There you go. Or Ringo. With the wig. With the wig. No longer bald. He's got bangs like Mo Howard. <laughs> let's, get, let's get chasing in here. Oh, man. So, uh, Bruce, uh, do you hang out on any of the social medias? I do. Which ones? Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I, I don't do TikTok. I don't dance for the camera or anything like that. Um, <laughs> I can start, I suppose. But yeah, I'm everywhere. Awesome. So I'll put links in the show notes oh, so people can catch up yeah, with you. And I, and I do have a website, bruceferber.net. For all your Bruce needs. <laughs> for all your Bruce needs and more and more. Bruce, thanks for hanging out with me. I really appreciate it. A lot of fun. Thank you so much, Jeff. And I'm, I'm glad Paul hooked us up. 
Great. Awesome. I hope Iberry Paul continues to be a huge success. I hope your next novel, huge success. And uh, I'll have you back and we'll talk about that one too. And we'll, and we'll, and we'll deep dive into Webster. We'll do a, a show by show <laughs> breakdown of Webster. There you go. When you come there back. You go. Thank <laughs> you so much. Jeff. Take care. All right. How awesome was Bruce Ferber? Great stories about being showrunner at Home Improvement. Probably no surprise. Tim Allen knows a lot about locks. Definitely get Bruce's book, I Buried Paul. All his books are amazing. There's a link in the show notes or go to bruceferber.net. There's links to all his books there and all his everythings. All your Bruce Ferber needs, as mentioned in the interview, are there. You love the Beatles? You're going to love I Buried Paul. That's a guarantee. All right. Well, with the interview over, I can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free Hashtag Roundup app at the Google Play Store or iTunes App Store. Tweet along with us. Follow us on Twitter at Hashtag Roundup. Play the hashtag games. And one day, one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. The hashtag for this episode, of course, is Beatles-themed. You had to see that coming. Musical hashtags. Did a fun one called hashtag badly describe the Beatles. Thought that'd be a funny one to dive into. We'll retweet all these at Jeff DeWaskin Show on Twitter that I'm going to read. Tweet your own hashtag badly describe the Beatles tweet with that hashtag. Tag us. I'll show you some Twitter love. But in the meantime, thanks to musical hashtags, a weekly game on hashtag roundup. Let's dive into hashtag badly describe the Beatles. The band before wings. That is a bad way to describe the Beatles. Second rate monkeys. Ah, it's just getting worse. Like Spinal Tap, except with the same drummer. A Riddles cover band, the OG boy band, four guys who just want to hold your hand. These are definitely hashtag badly described the Beatles tweets. So badly describing the Beatles. The reason my brother smokes weed and talks to the mailbox. I'm not sure you can blame the Beatles on the mailbox part. Four dudes with bowl haircuts. A barbershop quartet that didn't spend much time at the barbershop. Five guys from Manchester and our final. Hashtag badly described the Beatles tweet. The Wiggles with long hair and weed. Oh, no. Fruit salad. Yummy, yummy. Oh, that is a horrible way to describe the Beatles. But if you need good Beatles, check out I Buried Paul from my special guest, Bruce Ferber. That's right. With the interview over, the hashtag game over. We're at the end of episode 162. Thanks again to my special guest, Bruce Ferber. Can't believe all the time has come and gone. Thanks to all of you for coming back week after week. I can't thank you enough and I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.